Good morning again. There was a specific day when I was in college that I can remember clearly. A lot of my responsibilities were building up on me. I had a full course load. I was part of a leadership program that I had a commitment to. I was working as a resident assistant and I held a part-time job at a high school in Tampa Bay. And I had a lot due, uh, papers due and responsibilities and I was just feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders. I could feel it in my body. I was tense, I was irritable, and I just felt heavy. And I don't remember exactly what it was that triggered this, but I realized that I was looking at it from one perspective, and that from a different perspective, I might see that everything that I had to do were also things that I got to do, and that I had these opportunities afforded to me that not everyone has, and that I could adopt a posture of gratitude towards the opportunities that I had. And when that clicked for me, my body physically responded. I felt weight lift off my shoulders. I felt more joyful and more hopeful. I mean, it was instantaneous. And there was a physical chemical change in my body because of it. And I think a lot of times we have different situations that we come across where we feel like everything, everything changed. But in reality, nothing changed. I mean, I still had the same amount due. I still had the same responsibilities. But my understanding and my posture and interpretation of what was going on was completely different. And because of that, I was in a much better place. So you might consider this like a paradigm shift. That's a term that we could use for it. Um, that's used in science as well. When we realized that the Earth was round and not flat, that was a huge paradigm shift in science, right? Now the Earth was always round. It's not like when they realized it, the Earth changed from being flat to round, right? Because that's the nature of truth. Truth is truth. But our understanding of it changed, and therefore our conversation and our application of our knowledge and information changed. Same thing when we conceded that, yes, the solar system revolved around the sun and not the Earth. It was a huge paradigm shift. So reality oftentimes doesn't actually change, but how we understand it and process it and respond to it can change. I think there are some really great paradigm shift stories in the Bible, like Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, or Peter when he gets the vision that would send him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. I want to talk a little bit today, after um, two years of my own journey of kind of looking into how faith works and how it relates to the world around us, um, I want to talk a little bit about what science can tell us about how our beliefs work and what this means when it comes to the gospel. I will be getting a little bit technical and sciency in the first part, talking about some neuroscience that I've been studying. Um, and if that's not your thing, that's totally okay. The second half will still make sense and apply. Um, I was joking with Thomas that I could just encourage people, if they're not as much into the sciency part, to just practice your meditation <laughs> while I'm up here. Um, but I've been studying up on a lot of neuroscience and psychology and history in, in what I've been learning. So I'm excited to share some of that with you. So it's not quite your typical sermon, but it, that's intentional. I'm kind of talking to maybe those people who are going through a change of beliefs or a change of faith group, um, maybe those who have doubts. And so I'm intentionally coming at this from a little bit of a different angle, um, starting with science. And the place I want to start is that our beliefs are complex. Neuroscientists have been studying the brain through brain imaging and studying what parts of the brain become more active when subjects think or speak about a certain topic or perform an action such as praying when they're in, like for instance, like an MRI. 
And they are looking, the neuroscience who are really narrowing in on this faith aspect, we're looking for a God spot. Is there a spot in our brain that lights up when we talk about God or think about God? And what they found was that God is not a spot in our brain, but it's actually a network of our, really our whole brain working together that contributes to our understanding of God, which contributes to our understanding of the world around us. Dr. Andrew Newberg is one of the main neuroscientists that I've studied and read some of his stuff and listened to him talk. And he describes our beliefs in this way. Our beliefs are formed by our perceptions, our emotions, our cognition, and our social interaction. So these continually interact with each other over time as we learn and grow in the world. Our understanding of reality and of ourselves adapts with time. And this is a good thing. This is what helps us cope and grow as we move forward. Neurologically speaking, you actually never experience the same memory the exact same way twice. Because how you interpret it and interact with it changes over time. And I think we can see this if you think of like, you know, if you've ever lost a loved one. Um, memories that maybe didn't mean as much to you at one point suddenly mean so much to you. That's an example of how this might work in our brain. So what this means is that our beliefs are not just logical, rational conclusions that we draw. I know a lot of us like to believe that we are, I mean, myself included, but that's really just a dismissal of our humanity and how we work as humans. And we kind of see this. We see this when people say things like, it was the love that won me. That's actually really honest, and that's a good thing. Love is good for us, our bodies and our minds. But unfortunately, that same system also works the opposite way. If people leave faith or leave a faith group, they say it was the blank that lost me, right? Maybe hypocrisy, judgment, bigotry, shame, narrow-mindedness. I was just thinking about this. I've, I've never heard someone be like, you know, after further reflection, I just really think Jesus was a jerk. Yeah. He, I, just, I can't agree with his ethics anymore. I've never heard anything like that. There's always a, a, a culmination of different aspects um, that cause people to change their beliefs or where they practice those beliefs. The truth is that our brains change with us over time. Physically and physiologically, they change. They mold with us. We develop thicker, richer gray matter in areas of our brain that we use more, and we lose gray matter in areas of our brain that go unused. So we have an increase of synapses firing in the areas that we use more, and we decrease synapses firing in the areas that we don't use. So our brain adapts with us over time according to how we use it. The fancy word for this is neuroplasticity. You don't really need to know that, except that it means that your brain changes with you over time. And to me, this speaks a lot about free will. Because what we choose to focus on and what habits we make for ourselves and our lives actually helps carve out the path of our future because it changes how we relate to our perceptions and our emotions and our cognition and our social interaction. So I just wanna share with you three parts of the brain that come up in conversation a lot. This is a really simple overview, um, but, but if you're, when you're studying neuroscience, especially as it relates to um, beliefs and behavior, these are three parts that come up a lot. Number one is the amygdala, and I like to think of it as a fire alarm in our brain. It's the part of the brain that processes fear and anxiety and aggression. 
the amygdala's job is to evaluate threats around you and put you in self-preservation mode when necessary. So this is what happens when we come to a point of threat where we feel fight, flight, or freeze inside of us. The amygdala is uh, going on overdrive when that happens. The second part is the frontal lobe. I like to think of it as the part that helps us with adulting. Um, it processes rewards and attention, planning, and motivation. And this is the part that's not fully formed when we're teenagers. So unfortunately, our parents are right that you know, they were looking out for us as we were growing up. If they didn't fully trust our decision making, there were some reasons why. It's true. And the third part is um, our anterior cingulate cortex. Again, you, you might not ever need to know these words, but I just want to share with you. This is a part that deals with focus, decision making, ethics and morality, and impulse control and self-regulation. So the anterior cingulate cortex really has a lot to do with who you're becoming as a person and what kind of person you want to be. It's, it's that higher level than just making sure that you have shelter and food and a job. When you take that next step into how you really want to relate in the world, how you want to treat other people, um, and the ethics that you want to live by, the anterior cingulate cortex has a lot to do with that. So this all comes together to show us that our beliefs, practices, and experiences all affect each other. Um, a really common example that you might hear um, nowadays, because I think we're just recognizing that there's increased times of stress, and because of technology, we're taking less quiet time. Uh, a lot of people are talking about how general mindfulness and meditation practices decrease activity in our amygdala, which can um, lower our blood pressure, lower the stress hormones in our body, and I, I can personally attest that yoga and meditation have been really good for my health in that sense. But when the object of our meditation or our focus is something as big as a concept like God, it functions like a network, like we talked about. It's not just one spot. When it comes to how our brain processes the notion of God, there are really only two categories for how it works in our brain. There's a primarily angry God or a primarily loving God. And of course, there's spectrum and nuance in there, but over time, one of those will take the lead over another and how it functions in our brain. I want to read um, just a couple excerpts from a chapter about this and a book that has meant a lot to me, Finding God in the Waves by Mike McCarg. He is known by Science Mike, and this is where he talks about the angry God versus the loving God. When you experience God as being primarily angry, this experience shows up in your brain. God becomes highly associated with activity in the amygdala. You have more stress and you anger more easily. It becomes difficult for you to forgive yourself or others, and you become fearful or angry toward those who don't think, look, or act like you. And jumping over to the part where he talks about the loving God. The loving God affects the brain in ways that are remarkably different from the angry God. People who focus on God's love develop thicker, richer gray matter in their prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex. This development offers them better focus, concentration, compassion, and empathy. They have lower stress levels and lower blood pressure, and it's easier for them to forgive themselves and others. Over time, they even show less activity in the amygdala. Even more, people who believe that God is loving will eventually develop a characteristic asymmetry in the activity of their thalamus. When that happens, God's love becomes implanted in their sense of identity. 
and they begin to see the world as being basically safe. This not only allows the believer to experience peace, it also elevates her capacity to take risks for the sake of others. For those who know the loving God, the risk of being hurt in relationships is less important because God's love will transcend that hurt. I think it's important that we get to a place where we can be contemplative and not defensive about our beliefs because how we think about God will affect how we feel about God and that will pour out into our relationships. But it takes a lot of practice and a lot of work to get to the place where we're comfortable being contemplative and not defensive. One example of how our upbringing can affect us is looking at bullies or children who are seen as bullies in school. Um, social scientists have studied this in comparison to different parenting techniques that the children who were identified as bullies experienced in their home life. Um, developmental science tells us, and this is probably no surprise to any of you who've been around children, that kids do best and thrive in environments when they're given both love and structure. And so that's very relevant when we study, bu study bullying because there are some types of bullies that act out of entitlement because they come from homes where they're given all sorts of love and given everything they want but no structure, not enough structure. And then there are other types of bullies who pass on aggression that they experience because they're shown too much structure and too much demand and not enough love and affirmation and acceptance. But there's actually a third kind that they identified as the most dangerous bully. And these are children who are raised in environments where they're shown love and affection, but it's conditional to their performance. And so they're put in a constant state of threat of the abandonment of that love and that neglect, or, or of neglect. And they're in a constant state of striving to belong and be good enough. And the term that the social scientists developed for that is they have an insecure attachment to their family. And I don't know about you, but maybe the feeling of being really tired of having to try so hard to belong and be good enough really speaks to you, because I know that it does to me. So what does all this mean, and what does it mean as Christians to have Jesus-centered beliefs and practices? I want to share with you six perspectives um, on Christianity that I've learned the reason I want to do this is, this is my claim, there have been massive systemic misrepresentations of Jesus in recent religion, and especially in Western religion. And so these are six things that I've learned over the last two years that have totally changed my perspective and helped me heal and grow and feel more safe in the world. I'm not asking for you to take my word for any of these, because I would be doing the same thing that I'm arguing against by doing that, but my challenge would be that we can study these for ourselves. So we can read the Gospels, right? Meet Jesus on his own turf in the Gospels. We can study the context and listen to people who their lives are devoted to studying the context of the first century writings and really what made the Christian movement take off in its roots. Um, and then we can take it a step further. We could ask the people in our lives who've been transformed by Christianity, ask them why, what was it, and listen to their story. And we don't have to respond. We can just listen and contemplate what they tell us. But these are six, six claims I'm making about Christianity um, that have really changed my life. Number one, the gospel tells us that every human is made in the image of God. The God that's revealed by nature and more acutely by Christ 
would be described as creative, loving, forgiving, redemptive, patient, generous, justice-focused, communal, and rhythmic. I put rhythmic in there because it just struck me how cool it is that in the creation narrative in Genesis, um, the seventh day is dedicated to saying that God rested, that God took a day to rest, which is pretty awesome. And we see that, I think, when we study the Gospels also, where Jesus took frequent times of solitude to pray and to, uh, to be alone. So if humans are made in the image of God, that means that all of us have a seed or a spark. I've heard it called the divine spark. We have this inside of us by our very nature in the way that, he, that God created us. And even if it gets covered up by other things, that's in there. That's in there in us and in there in all humans. Number two, the gospel tells us that our Lord and Savior is familiar with our suffering, primarily because he willingly made himself low. If you study the etymology of compassion, it comes from Latin. The calm means together or alongside, and pati is to suffer. So compassion in its root means to suffer alongside or to suffer with. And I think that's exactly what we see when we look at Jesus. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. In Philippians 2, we see that he humbled himself and took on the role of a servant. In John 1, we see that, he, that the word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. And in 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. So what I'm emphasizing here is the direction that Jesus lowered himself to liken himself to us. He suffered in order to lift us up. A lot of other religions will teach us how to chase God and escape this world for heaven. Christianity says God is chasing you and will help you bring heaven down. Number three, the gospel tells us we are actively involved in bringing God's kingdom to earth here and now. And that's so cool because it means that all of us have a role that no one else can fill. Number four, Jesus meets us at our worst and walks us into our best. This, by the way, is why times of suffering can be so transformative, such transformative experiences. Especially if you've ever felt alone or abandoned by the people that you thought you could trust or maybe rejected for doing the right thing, you start to see Jesus' story a little different because he understands. And even when it is our own mess that we've made that got us there, when we come to the end of ourselves, you know, if you study the road to recovery, like from addiction and things like that, through the gospel we see that God is not interested in punishing us for our wrongdoing, but in redeeming everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for ultimate good. Number five, Jesus holds the tension between mercy and grace and justice, mercy and justice. He was unafraid to call evil and hypocrisy and abuse of power for exactly what it was, but he didn't adopt their own tactics in order to fight back. Instead, he exposed the evil and he subverted it from the bottom up. And number six, Jesus introduces a third way, a third way of living. We never have to settle for the lousy dichotomies that require that we sell our soul one way or another. 
I would say the cross and the crucifixion is itself a rejection of the dichotomy, especially between religious elitism and political power. Jesus refused to sell his soul for either one, and he was killed for it. And yet somehow, through that apparent failure, God brought about the healing of the world. That's subversion. So in short, the way of Jesus is marked by radical inclusion, radical mercy, radical grace, and radical love. And when we sit in that long enough, and we let it become implanted in our sense of identity, like Science Mike said, then we also see radical calls to generosity, to humility, to compassion, and to justice. The gospel is not an intellectual argument. It's not a check mark of a box. Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and this one interpretation of the Bible is true, and here I am, I have arrived. But a lot of us have been led to see it that way. Neurologically, emotionally, cognitively, and socially, it takes more than a conversion moment. And I would say that forcing people into an ultimatum of accepting Jesus or not before they've even gotten to know him can actually short-circuit the work of the gospel in their life. Maybe our focus ought to be in helping people feel welcome enough to spend more and more time with us and to take part in our rituals and help make our communities better. Maybe we should be working harder so that they feel secure in their attachment with us. This does mean that most of us have a lot of inner work to do. For those of us who are maybe recovering from a rigid or narrow framework of truth with a trademark, we have to do the hard work of naming our pain and disappointment and disillusionment, grieving our losses, and recognizing the good that we can take with us. And then we can cast the rest of the baggage on God. That's what he wants. But that's not a quick or easy process. And for us doubters, and I talk to both because I identify with both, we can't close ourselves off forever. We have to find a way to keep engaging with the good things, and that will mean stepping outside of our comfort zones. With time and trustworthy people, we can break down the walls that we've built for safety. There's no perfect thing or group or system on this side of life, and accepting that can help us engage again. We don't have to forget the lessons of the past, but we don't have to be chained by our past either. We can get to a place of being contemplative and not defensive. I believe that this is a tangible posture shift that we can adopt, where we can respond to situations rather than reacting to situations. We can listen to our emotions, but not be controlled by them either. Instead, we can be led by our values. My argument is that following Jesus calibrates and matures our values inside of us. I want to offer just a couple phrases that those of us who maybe find themselves in a liminal space, an in-between space of maybe you're moving on from something and you're moving forward, but you don't know exactly what that looks like yet. Here are some phrases that have at least helped me a lot in that liminal space. I don't know. I need to think on that. It affirms your ability to think about things, and it puts some space if someone is trying to pressure you in a certain direction, that you are allowed to carve yourself out some space to think and reflect. This is kind of similar. My perspective may be growing on that topic. 
just to affirm that, affirm that for yourself and other people will see that boundary that you're setting. And here's a really simple one. Yeah, I don't understand that. <laughs> what if we were just honest? What if we were just honest about the things that we don't get and the doubts and questions that we have? We can learn to hold our doubts and questions with grace. That's what we've been doing at our uh, Honest Church, which is why we named it that, by the way, which has been just, uh, in my life at least, it's been really, really great to be able to make that space for each other. I've really felt walls and facades just going down, and we all get to be more authentic with each other. I think that we can make space to be wrong. We can make space to fail. When we're bombarded with ideas of idealism, especially with social media, where all day, every day, we're seeing like everyone's highlight reel, we're seeing the best of everything. I think we've forgotten how to fail to our own disadvantage. Grace should make us feel secure enough to take some calculated risks, to try new things, to explore and have wonder and awe and curiosity in the world like children do. There are a lot of problems in the world, if you haven't noticed, and we need some people to try some daring things in order to solve them. We need to do it in a way that doesn't just mark certain people as good and certain people as bad, but that enacts those values inside of all of us and draws us together. We can find community that honors our ability to think, question, and grow. In case anyone needs to hear this, I just want to say it out loud. Your intelligence is not a threat. It's a gift. Your creativity is not a threat. It's a gift. Your uniqueness is not a threat. It's a gift. You are not a threat. If you are a threat to a system just for being yourself, that is their problem and not yours because you are a gift. We can find community where we can be honest because the more secure that we are in ourselves without spending so much energy just to fit in, the more we will be able to pour out for other people. And in doing so, we can set others free too. Here's another phrase that we can practice. Even if we disagree, I am here for you and with you. Or you might say, our friendship is secure even if we don't see things the exact same way. You don't have to earn my love, you already have it. Now there is a line, and I think it's important to say this doesn't apply in situations of abuse or toxicity. There's a time when separation might be necessary and you can love somebody from afar. If your soul is getting crushed over and over, eventually you won't be able to pour out for anybody. So we do, we call abuse for what it is, and we gather around our brothers and sisters who've been wounded until they're strong enough on their own. But short of harmful or toxic relationships, this is how people are changed. This is how people are healed. Because here's the big picture. Suffering together leads to healing together and growing together and eventually celebrating together. I believe this is imprinted in creation. I mean, really, that's the gospel. So this is the bottom line. If Jesus is the express image of God, then anchoring our beliefs and practices on him will bring out the image of God in us more and more and help us see it in others. And what's great about this is it's testable. We can try it. We can actually try it out for ourselves. We can change our routine and try to be more and more like Jesus or surround ourselves with people who want to be more and more like Jesus and see what happens. 
If we treat people like they have the image of God in them, we will see that they do. The gospel shifts our paradigms to see the hope and be the hope where there wasn't any hope before. Um, Science Mike, the author of that book that I read, had a subtitle of a part of an article that he wrote for a different a publication, and it said, since I asked Jesus into my anterior cingulate cortex. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, but I also think it's true because the gospel changes individuals from the inside out and changes societies from the bottom up. I personally haven't found any other narrative or teaching that does what Jesus does. So here's what I want to leave you with, and even if you're not quite sure about all of the supernatural, the spiritual stuff, this is important. Dr. Andrew Newberg, one of the neuroscientists that I mentioned, was asked if skepticism would eventually hurt our brain, if it would put us in a pattern that was harmful to our brain. He said, skepticism won't hurt your brain, but cynicism will. When we, when we get ourselves in a funk or a pattern of always seeing the worst and expecting the worst, we will stay in that rut. I just heard another piece of evidence from a different talk of how negative, fearful, or hateful information or experiences will imp imprint in our brain, and our brain will cling to it like Velcro immediately. But positive and loving experiences or information take 15 seconds of contemplation to burn in in the same way. So it really does take intention and repetition to hold on to the good, especially in trying times. That's why it's really important to get to the place where we are living from the hope. We can make changes to fill our mind with hopeful things and make space in our routine for contemplation and not defensiveness. If we're gonna take a hard line on something, we can be like Jesus and take a hard line on loving others. We can find community that honors the image of God in us and helps us see it in other people. And then we can watch over time how our perceptions and emotions and cognition and social interactions change in accordance with that. And that, I think, is the path that we are called to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example of Jesus. Thank you for such a tangible example to model our lives after of walking the third way of rejecting the false dichotomies that the world offers. Thank you for his example that the love can always be louder. Let your love become so much a part of our identity that we feel safe enough to dare to take risks to make the world a better place right alongside of you. Help us find the practices and the people that help calibrate and mature our values inside of us and reflect more of you because of it. For those of us who feel alone, be especially close to us in the liminal spaces and then help us to step outside of our comfort zone as we're ready to find that healthy community. Maybe not perfect, but healthy. For those of us with doubts and questions, help us to learn how to hold them with grace so that we are not controlled or held back by them. Help us to learn how to work with our brains and bodies and not against them. Help us to learn how to live out of the hope and be the hope, even in hopeless situations. I thank you for everyone here, for anyone watching online and those listening later, God. In Jesus' name, amen.